Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. America! The Nightcap. Cameron! USA, baby! Woo! That's what America's all about, D. Right here, this is the USA! Oh, relax. Oh, I'm going to sit through Oh, you going to throw with me? Little actor boy, you want to go with the Patriots? Get your bed. Get your bed and go. Okay? Because I'll throw down. I'll throw down any day of the week. Keep your little man and drive out of my face, okay? Before I go America, all over here. Nobody can stop the USA. Yeah. But that's not right. I am talking about freedom. About choice. America, I don't think you need to worry. Because if you want to beat China, you will. If you don't, that's fine. That, my friend is your victory. Who do you play for? Play for the United States of America. On WGR Sports Radio 550. Hope everyone had a good Memorial Day weekend. Welcome into the nightcap. Jody Biasi here on WGR. Full show tonight. We will bring you... I won't be here tomorrow, so I'm going to get all my takes out now. Or I will be. I'm only for 45 minutes. Until we'll get you to Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Game 1 was pretty fiery. We had some stuff. Brad Marchand's name is in the news again. We'll talk a little bit about that later. He's talking about replay and the Tory Krug hit and whether it was a charge or not. Um, he had no helmet making the hit, which was pretty cool, but uh, I got thoughts on that as well. And uh, lots of hockey today, but of course a lot of football too, as the uh, the Bills are continuing on the field at OTAs, organized team activities, and all the coordinators spoke today. You can check all of those out at WGR550.com on-demand audio. We'll hear a little bit from both the offensive and defensive coordinator today, uh, Brian Dable at 7.30, and Leslie Frazier at 8.30, so stay tuned for a little bit of that, a little bit of football talk as well. So... I'm watching the Stanley Cup Finals last night, and I'm thinking about the Boston Bruins, and I'm, I'm almost second-guessing the choice that I made in the first round. When the Leafs and Bruins were playing against each other, I made a decision that in that Game 7, I was going to root for the Boston Bruins. I was going to root for a Boston sports team. Because it wasn't the Stanley Cup Finals. If it had been, it would have been a different choice. But, you know, at the time, thinking about those two teams... I wanted the Bruins, of course, to lose at some point. If they win the whole thing, I'm going to hate myself for doing that. But a loss in round one would have thrown the Leafs into turmoil, especially with their fans. And that wouldn't have happened to Boston. Boston has had tons of success, more than any sports city has seen in a given decade than we've ever seen. And last night, I'm watching them, I'm like, oh man, they look really good. They outshot St. Louis like 35-14 to at one point. And the Blues just did not have it. 
until the final minute or two, they just couldn't even get the puck close to the net, close to Tukarask. And that kept building up, and of course Boston ended up winning. But anyways, on the Leafs. They had lost in the first round two years in a row. So expectations were already high. They wanted that next step. They had young players, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner. You can give them a little bit of leeway. It's like, all right, you guys are young. We get that you lost to the Capitals a couple years ago in the first round. We get that you lost to, I think the Lightning was the other team. Or maybe, no, it was Boston. They lost two years in a row to Boston. We get that you lost to the Bruins, too. But then, expectations were even amped up even more when you signed John Tavares. And when they lost to the Bruins again in the first round with Tavares... And Marner and Matthews, like this was their year, the best year for them to go for it because it was right before they had to sign a bunch of guys. And it was right when you could have Tavares on $11 million and still afford to have the rest of your roster be really good. Because no matter what happens, it's not going to take a major hit, but the lease roster will be worse than it was last year. It will be. They just don't have the money to do it. As it stands today, the Maple Leafs have less than $9 million in cap space as it stands today for next season. That's with five defensemen under contract. That is with restricted free agents to sign, most notably Mitch Marner. And when they lost, I thought that you know the change might come at head coach. And it seemed like a lot of people thought that too, that Babcock could be on the way out. Sheldon Keith's name, getting a lot of love around NHL circles. As like a next up-and-coming, young, bright head coach. And he's already in the Toronto system. He's a Kyle Dubas guy. And that Dubas might want to do that, considering he didn't even hire Mike Babcock. But that's not going to happen. It seems like he's staying. At least for this year. The roster has one big thing that can change. Mitch Marner. And that restricted free agent status. And... His name came up most notably today because Darren Dreger went on radio in Toronto and said this. I'd be surprised if the agent Darren Ferris doesn't connect with Kyle Dubas and uh, the Leafs management crew in Buffalo this week during the combine, but I wouldn't get your hopes up on that. Um, it's, it's just due process, and the Barner camp is still looking at July 1st or beyond July 1st, and he's, he's earned the right to do that. He 100% has earned the right to do that, and I'd be shocked if Mitch Marner and Darren Ferris or Mitch Marner, Darren Ferris and his dad or another member aren't on an airplane on June 26th starting the visiting process. It seems like from that and from everything that's been reported on Mitch Marner leading up to this point that he is as good a candidate as we have had in years to be offer sheeted. We haven't even had a guy that we've most specifically talked about for the idea of offer sheeting. Like whenever I hear Jeremy talking about it or Mike talking about it in our station, it's generally the the overall philosophy of doing an offer sheet. And it's rare that we have a guy that's in the news like, hey, he could be offer sheeted, he could be offer sheeted. And I remember th- reading stuff about Marner going back to last year when they signed Tavares. And how the Islanders maybe would be the most, you know, able to do an offer sheet team that we've seen in years because they have the motivation to do it. They have the cap space to do it. All of their good players are, their top six players are going to be UFAs. Anders Lee, they actually just signed Brock Nelson, Jordan Aberle, bunch of guys. And they have the motivation to do it. 
The Leafs just took their franchise player last year. They just did it. And, and the Toronto Maple Leafs GM that drafted Mitch Marner is now the Islanders GM, which is Lou Lamorello. They have all the motivation in the world to be that first team in six years to do an offer sheet. And Marner, from what it sounds like, the reports surrounding him and his camp, it sounds like he's one of the first players in a long time that sounds willing and ready to sign one. Because that that's another part of that argument of why offer sheets don't really happen a lot. It, the teams are always the teams are always the thing we look at for why they don't happen. The GMs, they don't have the they don't have the stones to do it. They don't want to offend each other. They don't want someone else to take their young players. So that's why they don't happen. That's partially true. I think that's probably the biggest reason that they don't happen. But you do need the player to play ball too. You need the player to be willing and able to make to sign the offer sheet himself knowing full well that there's a chance that if his team matches, then now he's got to go back to an organization that knows, hey, you signed to play somewhere else. Listening to Ryan O'Reilly over uh, over the regular season, he did a podcast with Greg Wyshynski and Emily Kaplan, ESPN on Ice. And he did an interview. It was a really long one. Like They were talking about his entire career. And they went back to when he signed that offer sheet because he is the last player to sign an offer sheet. It's been six years. When he was with Colorado, he signed a two-year $10 million offer sheet with the Calgary Flames. And Colorado matched it. And O'Reilly talked about how the attitude towards him had kind of changed in the locker room, at least for like a little bit, when he came back. It's almost like the locker room knew, hey man, you went, you, you signed to play against us. You signed to leave us. And you're still here, but we all know that you tried to leave us. And all the players, from what he said, kind of gave him that attitude for a little bit. Um, and he said that he regretted signing it. He said that. So if the last guy to sign an offer sheet regrets that he signed an offer sheet, that's part of the problem too. That's part of the reason that they don't happen. But, Marner, we're here. And it looks like it could happen. And he might even be talking to he might be talking to Kyle Dubas in Buffalo right now. But like I said, Toronto was just under nine million dollars in cap space going into free agency. And I'm getting to the Sabres here because there is a Saber point coming. This isn't just going to be about the Leafs. They have, like I said, five defensemen under contract. That's their biggest need, by the way. And they're about to lose Jake Gardner, so their biggest need is about to get even needier. Andreas Johansson. Good young player. Rookie season this year had 40 points. He's an RFA. Kasperi Kapanen's an RFA. Good young player. He was the main piece of what you got back when you traded Phil Kessel to Pittsburgh. He had 44 points this year in his first full year. Pretty good. Pretty solid. If the Leafs sign Marner, you're not just keeping them. Or you're not keeping them. I should say. And you still have to do stuff. Just to make room for Marner. If he signs a $12 million contract, you're $4 million over the cap as it stands today, and you've got other stuff to do. So you got to do something. You don't have room to afford that blue liner you want. You could say goodbye to Johansson. You could say goodbye to Kapanen and Gardner and the blue liner you might want to add. And probably either a Willie Nylander or a Nazem Kadri just to make that work. And you sign Marner, you're saying goodbye to four or five things. I would argue the Leafs would want another team to offer sheet him. 
which is another element to this whole thing. I think it makes sense for Toronto to want another team to get Mitch Marner and sign him to an offer sheet and keep all those guys I just talked about and then add four first-round picks to your team. So, now the Sabres. I don't really, I think it's kind of a pipe dream. But, it is something I'd like to see them go for. It's something I'd like to see them be aggressive with. Even if you don't think you could pull it off, try to pull it off. Go for it. Not in the, don't get in, I wouldn't want it to get in the way of signing Jeff Skinner. If you don't think you can pull off both, then do Skinner. Skinner is priority one. Because that should be, that's realistic, or it's more realistic. I'm not going to say Marner's completely unrealistic, but it's certainly more realistic that the Sabres signed Skinner than offer sheet Mitch Marner. And you have some reason to believe that he wants to stay here and that you can keep him. But if you can think you can do both, if you, if you could pull them both off, then that's something I'd like to see the Sabres be really aggressive in doing. We're talking about a 94-point player last year. And I don't think that's all just who he played for. I think it might be part of it, but I'm not so sure that... I mean, you think about it. He comes here, and this is why I always hate the argument of, yeah, he was he had that many points over there and on that team, but that was only because of who he's playing with. Well, we've got a guy that you can kind of say that about. Like, if Jeff Skinner is going to hit free agency, I'm sure teams, fans of teams other, other places might say, yeah, he had 40 goals last year, but it was because he's playing with Jack Eichel. So you bring Marner here, he's playing with a top premier talent at least at the top of the Sabres roster. And I would think that he would probably do similar stuff. A 90-point season seems completely within the realm of possibility. He had a couple of 60-point years to start his career, so there was only to go up from there. Like, that's the baseline. The money, to me, is not the problem. The Sabres are set up pretty well right now. And this is part of the reason last week I didn't want them to do the Ryan Callahan thing, which might still be out there. But I didn't want them to bring in a Ryan Callahan contract because their cap is starting to look pretty good. They're starting to get there. It had looked really bad in past years with bad contracts, veteran players that were not giving you much, that were on big salaries. And those players still exist to some extent. But Bogosian, Scandella, one year left. And then you're out. Pominville, you're done. Molson, you're done. The only one left that's got a long period of time left on it is Kyle Poso. That's only one. I could stomach one bad contract like that. So you got one more year until you've only got one. For this year, they have $27 million in cap space. The Sabres do. Next year, you have over $50 million in cap space. Let's say, Skinner, you get him at $9 million, which is probably pretty high for him. Um, I'm just going to put that out there for now, though. Skinner at $9 million. And let's say it takes $12 million to get Marner to sign with you and $12 million for Toronto to not match it. Because that would make it really tough on them. You'd still have $6 million left over. Now you might not be able to get that big Premier Blue Line addition that you want. Like You're not going to be able to sign, trade for Jacob Truba if you wanted to do that. But you could do something more minor. And you're going to be scoring a lot of goals. Or hell, maybe that's your excuse for trading Ristolainen. And figuring out another way to add to the Blue Line. But at least cap-wise... You can make these things work, which is why I would want the Sabres to go for it. Because the the cap can work. And that's not even mentioning that, yeah, you have to sign Darlene and Reinhardt and even maybe Middlestat after this upcoming season. 
you'd still have over 30 million left. Even if I did those two things, two things that might not even happen at this point, but even if I somehow was able to manage those two big fish on my team at a combined $20 million or so, I've still got over $30 million to sign Darlene, Reinhardt, and Middlestad. That's, that's more than I need for that. The biggest question on this whole thing is, is Mitch Marner worth four first-round picks? Is he worth four first-round picks? Because that's the cost. And that's the only offer sheet the Sabres can really even do because the one step below that, uh, compensation-wise, they don't have a second-round pick this year. Anyways, you're not getting him anyway for that lower compensation. You're only getting him for four first-round picks if you want him. And you have to pay a big, big contract to get him. That's the cost. And I would argue the player is worth it for the money. When I would start to hesitate is the four first-round picks. If the Sabres had been a playoff team... The last few years, adding this guy, I'd be all in. I would want them to, where's that Brad Richards helicopter that was supposed to be taking him around the city over Niagara Falls, convincing him to to, uh, to come here? Like, break that thing out of the garage. I'd be all in. But I'm hesitant to do it because of what the Sabres have been. Because even if you did somehow manage to add Mitch Marner to your team, and even maybe keep Skinner, I still... Would not. I would be very hopeful and very hyped up, but I still wouldn't be all set. I think like I wouldn't. I don't think you could know even with that roster. The Sabers wouldn't have a high pick again in the next few years. And the last thing that I ever want to see happen with this team is what happened to the Ottawa Senators this year. They were awful, awful. Worst team in the league. Not even close. The Ottawa Senators, just dreadful. As bad a team as we've seen since probably the Sabres when they were tanking four or five years ago. And they didn't have their first pick. That small light at the end of the tunnel that everyone hates to talk about and wants to not think about really until we get to the offseason and the draft. Some people more than others. That draft pick. That all right. At least I'm getting a top five talent. At least I'm going to have this good young player that I could, can, I can add to my mix and maybe even build around. That was gone for the Senators this year. It wasn't there. They had no hope of Jack Hughes. They had no hope of Capo Caco. They have fourth overall, which is not, or th- that pick ended up being fourth overall, which wouldn't have been those franchise uh, players. But still, it would have been gone. And not only would the Sabres be setting themselves up for that happening potentially once there's four picks there and that is a tremendous amount of value a huge amount of value and i that's the part where i'm starting to draw back i don't know that marner is worth that much maybe this is why offer sheets don't happen that much because You've got a lot of hurdles to get by. You've got to get the player to be on board. You've got to get the money to work. You've got to have a team that basically can't afford that contract in the first place. That's three elements to it. And then you've got to be you have to have the picks and you have to be okay giving up the picks. And I'll be honest, I think the Sabres check off for me like in this Marner idea for any team out there. But specifically here for the Sabres. It checks off about three or four boxes for me. But that last one, I don't know if I can get there. 
I have the four first round picks, but would I like would I trade four first round picks for Mitch Marner? And that's where I really start to have the debate internally. And me personally, I I think I would have to lean very slightly towards no. I would really have to think about it if I were in that spot. And I would probably get to a point where I'd get excited enough about the player where I'd just go to hell with it. Let's do it. Let's go score. Let's go be one of the highest scoring teams in the league. Let's go put a line together with Jeff Skinner, Mitch Marner, and Jack Eichel. But I don't know. It's, it's tough for me to see that happening. I do think he's going to sign one. I still think the Islanders will be that team, but I think he's going to sign one. If I had to guess today, if you had to make me bet on what happens, I think Mitch Marner is going to sign with the Islanders. Maybe he'll visit with the Sabres. I don't know. But I, I don't really think they're that. Um, they'll be that much in play for this. I really think the Islanders make a ton of sense then. It's a super interesting situation. I'm glad it's happening. I wish it happened more. But... You got to take it when you get it, I guess. Every six years. I don't want it to be every six years. It did happen more than that before. You know, looking back at offer sheets, like it wasn't like this, where you just didn't have them for a long period of time. O'Reilly's the last one in 2013. Shea Weber signed one the year before that. Shea Weber signed a 14-year, $110 million deal with the Philadelphia Flyers. Some people forget that. And the Predators, I think they had to go get a loan from a bank to be able to pay that contract up front. Two years before that was the was the last. Uh, so you had one in 2013, you had one in 2012, you had one in 2010, 2008, 2008, two in 2007, including Thomas Vanek. Both of those were by the Oilers. The Oilers offer sheeted two players in one year. They ended up getting Dustin Penner, Ryan Kessler in 2006, and then there was a gap, 98. So you had a gap between 1998 and 2006 with an offer sheet, and then you pretty much had at least one a year or at least averaged out that way. And then you got to 2013, and it's just been dry ever since. Um, so I'm hoping it happens, and I hope that it kind of opens up a little bit more because these are ideas that you like, are fun to talk about, and they're only fun to talk about, though, if they're realistic. So you need some guys to start signing them uh, for it to you know, start to get that way. 803-0550 is the phone number if you want to get in on this conversation. What do you think? Is it even a realistic idea that we should even be talking about here? And if it was, would you go for it? Because, like I said, four first-round picks is a hefty price. And I'm not so sure I'd want the Sabres to do it, even if they can make all the other elements work. 803-0550 is the phone number. You can get it on the text line, too. We'll read through some of your texts at 550-550 when we come back. Some tweets as well at Sneaky Joe. WGR. We'll play back Brian Dable and Leslie Frazier as we progress as we'll get into the Bills as we keep going here uh, on the Nightcap. Jody Biasi here on WGR. I believe that has to be our goal and let's be honest we still have some building to do. There's free agency ahead. We have some conversations even within players we still have in free agency so let's bring the lineup together. I need to get to know the others better. It's, uh, I have a few months here to really get up to speed on our competition but I certainly believe we can be in the mix here very quickly and this season needs to be one where the people feel us moving towards being a contender. Ralph Kruger speaking with Darren Dreger from Slovakia during the World Championships last week. I like that point about, I like the word he used. I like contender, not just playoffs. Because, I don't know, I think you contend for the playoffs this year, and I think you've still got a lot of angst. I think you've still got a lot of anger. I think people would be calling, I think, 
I don't know. Jason Bottrell's job. It, it, he can't have that much rope. He's certainly safe for now. But like, what type of season do they need to have for a GM change? Because that's that would be next. I think. Um, I don't know. Like injuries would be different. Obviously, it would depend what how the season happened. If knock on wood, if Jack Eichel were to be injured, miss a significant amount of time, any of the important players were to be injured, Darlene Skinner, if he's here, Reinhardt, um, that's different. But if everyone's there and your blueprint is kind of like set in place and it's still not working, then then the discussion comes about. And that could that could happen, I think, even if you're close to the playoffs and not making it. Kruger there is talking about being a contender. You need to show people that you're on the right path to being a contender because we're, this whole thing, the whole the tank in 2014-15, the, the suffering comment by Darcy, which seems like ages ago now, all of that, was met with favorability by lots of fans because it was a different way of thinking. It was not just, all right, we just want to get in the playoffs here. The the great race for eighth, we want to win that race. No, no we're talking we're talking about not having to worry about making the playoffs because we're thinking about bigger things. And that's not normally been the case around here. Like one season in the last two decades is maybe that. Or like when how many times have the Sabres gone into a season and you weren't thinking about the playoffs, you were thinking about the Stanley Cup? Is it once in the last 25 years? I don't remember the late 90s enough to know this, but were those teams like expected to be Stanley Cup contenders? I don't think so. Ted Nolan won coach of the year in 97, so that makes me think no one expected them to win because it's essentially what coach of the year is. No, we didn't see this coming. Oh, so what do we got what do we got to do? We got to give the coach uh, coach of the year because we didn't. It's basically upset of the year. Um, Ninety nine was that that weren't they a lower seed? I don't remember enough. And oh five oh six was a surprise. Oh seven is the only year I can think of where it's like going in. All right, this year is about the cup, and that's what the whole rebuild was about. That's what the whole uh, tank was about. That's what it was all about. And I think you need to I think you need to look like that, what Kruger said. You need to show that you're gonna be a contender or you're on your way to being a contender. And I don't think you can show that this year unless you're a playoff team. Like that is the first step. Or that's the second step, I should say. The first step is building it back up. And they've tried to do that. Step number two is making the playoffs. Because you gotta, what, what is the saying? You gotta crawl before you walk. You gotta walk before you run. And they haven't walked yet. They, they've been crawling. And you, you gotta get in the playoffs first. The Leafs are going through this now. But I'm sure when they made it a couple years ago, they were fine with a first round exit. Because that's not, that year was about, you know, it was kind of a waypoint. Before you get to the result. The result is the cup. But you've got to show you can make be a playoff team. Before you can show you can be a Stanley Cup team. In almost every situation. That this league has seen. Like how many teams go straight from. One of the worst in the league. To boom they're the cup champs. That almost never happens. Usually you make the playoffs first. And that's why like we've waited long enough. For that second step. That that's got to be the minimum bar. I'll, I'll sit here right here and say it. If the Sabres have a better season than they did last year, if they have 90 points and they don't make the playoffs, I'm not okay with that. 
I'm absolutely not okay with that. Because just because the team has been bad does not mean that my bar for what this whole rebuild was about has sunk with it. I'm still where it was. I want playoffs at least this year. And then once you do that, then I'm thinking about the Stanley Cup. And that's kind of what Kruger's talking about there. And that's kind of what this whole uh, Marner conversation was about in the first segment. Because that's, that's a big idea. That is a big, aggressive idea. One that's so aggressive that no NHL team has tried it in six years. And by the way... Like, that whole Riley offer sheet, maybe that just tainted everything. And that's why it hasn't happened. Because O'Reilly seemed like he regretted it from listening to him talk over the course of this year. Um, And I think Calgary regretted it because that was the most amazing story ever. If you don't remember, when Calgary offer sheeted Ryan O'Reilly... He had played in the KHL during the lockout. There was something something like that had happened. O'Reilly played in the KHL during the lockout. And he maybe played after the season had officially begun again because he was under contract. So he kind of stayed over in the KHL while everyone else was returning from the lockout. And there's some rule that if a guy plays over Europe in Europe and he signs a contract here, he has to pass through waivers. It was some system, some system like that. Or if there was a transaction, he'd have to pass through waivers. And the thing was, hey, Calgary offer sheeted him, but if Colorado doesn't match, Calgary has to pay the compensation. Jay Feaster was their GM at the time. Calgary will have to pay the compensation and then place him on waivers. They will be forced to. And they will lose him in waivers because he's Ryan O'Reilly. So essentially what would have happened was, I, sometimes I really wish Colorado would just let him go just to see that happen. Where... The Flames would have had to trade like two first-round picks to sign Ryan O'Reilly and then not get him. Oh, that would have been so funny. I wish that happened. Um, anyways, I, I promise I'll read through a couple of texts. There were a couple of interesting ones uh, that I wanted to get to. Um, Texter says he would not want to give $12 million a year. This is from Jim. Would not want to give $12 million a year to Marner. Almost as much as McDavid. Correct. On top of that, four first-round picks in our division. Would never want that to happen. Um, I don't really worry too much about the division point, but I can see why you wouldn't want to do that. And another uh, tweeter says, this is from Derek, what about Skinner and Panarin if we don't go after Marner? I just really don't think Panarin's coming here. I think there's a, almost a 0% chance of that happening. From what everyone's talking about, he wants to go to a big city. And that's not here. If he do, if he doesn't want to stay in Columbus, because it's not a big city, Buffalo I think is maybe relatively close in size to Columbus. I'm not sure, um, but I, I don't think he's coming here. No way. And maybe if they were like a cup contender by now, the Sabers were, then maybe I could think about it. But you don't have the results or the location that he wants, so I, there's no way that's happening. He wouldn't leave Columbus. If he was thinking about winning, he would rather be in Columbus, I think, at this point. Um, good thought, though, because he is a free agent. Uh, 803-0550 is the phone number if you want to get in on this. We're going to switch to football, though, when we come back. Uh, Leslie Frazier spoke a lot on the defense today. There's some interesting position battles on the defense. Cornerback, in particular, is one I'm keeping an eye on. I liked Levi Wallace last year, but he was an undrafted guy. Kind of like Robert Foster. Like, Can we expect that to keep going, or was that kind of fluky uh, in his rookie year? Uh, Leslie Frazier on the way next and then hour number two we'll get into some basketball we'll get back into the Marner conversation a little bit as we progress so the nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR
Welcome back to the nightcap. Switching to some football. We'll get back into hockey. A little more reaction to my Mitch Marner comments in hour number two. Some NBA Finals talk as well. I am super pumped for Thursday for that series to get going. I'm so happy the Raptors are the team that made it. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Bills also on the field today at OTAs, organized team activities, as we progress through the offseason. Still shorts and t-shirts. But, by all accounts, Josh Allen looked great. We'll hear more about that in hour number two. Uh, the defense, though, is also interesting. Levi Wallace, the cornerback battle um, for his spot. Kevin Johnson's in that, I guess, too. Uh, free agent from the Texans. Uh, Ad Oliver now on the defense. Tremaine Edmonds in year number two. Lots of interesting things on the defense. Leslie Frazier spoke on those today with the media. Here is the Bills defensive coordinator. Had a good Memorial Day weekend, and uh, you know we got back to work today, and guys were really into it, a lot of energy at practice. Uh, Sean put us in some different situations that – Hopefully we'll bode well for us when the season rolls around, but the guys have been working extremely hard. We've had great attendance. It's really been a good uh, four OTAs, a good offseason up to this point, and uh, hopefully we can just build on that in the remaining days that we have. But so far, so good with our guys. Hey, Leslie, uh, it looks like one of the best competitions in the whole camp is cornerback. So on your side of it, just, I mean, it's early, but have you liked what you've seen out of the guys that are competing at that spot? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. The corner position, we've got some good competition, and uh, we'll see how it unfolds as time goes on. But right now, it's really good to watch. I mean, to see those guys compete every single snap and they're battling for a spot and, uh, you know, who's going to be the starter. Levi's the incumbent. He's done a really good job for us, played well for us down the stretch last season, so we'll see how it shakes out. Specifically on uh, Kevin Johnson, obviously he missed almost all of last year, but that's a first-round talent from four years ago. Yes. What do you like about that signing and what he might be able to bring to you guys? Well, you're right. I mean, former first-round pick who had a good career in, in, in Houston, uh, the injuries are kind of what sidetracked him, but you saw the ability coming out of college. Uh, you know, he did a really good job in his rookie year, off to a really good start. Uh, but the injuries have kind of creeped up. So we, you know, we're hoping that he can stay healthy. We know he has the talent to really help us, but we'll see as time goes on. Leslie, what do you make of Trent Murphy? And for a guy who maybe was a little self-delusional last year and thinking he could be 100% while rehabbing from all that stuff that he had to rehab, what do you make of him a year from now, like, like a year later and yeah. what he looks like? I've told him a few different times, John, as we've gone through some drills here in the OTAs, how different he looks. And, of course, last year at this time, you know, he was, like you said, just coming off the injury and the surgery and, and really kind of feeling his way. But the confidence, uh, the, the movement, uh, everything looks so much better. And so we're hoping that just continues as we get further along. But, I mean, he's a different player. And you would expect that coming off the type of injury that he had. And you know, as his confidence grows, and the fact that he's more comfortable with what we're doing on defense as well, all that helps. And uh, But he looks really good. I mean, he's, he's come a long ways from a year ago this time. Like, was there an expectation last year? I know I've talked to some people that this was going to be a two-year thing, that you couldn't really expect Trent Murphy to be Trent Murphy, that what he did two years earlier right. last year. Was that – did you factor that in when you were assessing what he looked like last year? Oh, absolutely. You know, we knew coming off the type of injury that he had that it takes time and – uh, not only from a physical standpoint, but the mental also, where you gain the confidence to be able to do some of the things that you did before. And uh, we're seeing the, the fruits of that uh, because he works extremely hard and he's done a good job in his preparation for this offseason. So, as I mentioned, he's just a, a different-looking player 
uh, to date than he was a year ago this time. But we did factor in the fact that he's coming off a major surgery. It's going to take a little time. Uh, Fortunate for us, he was able to give us some snaps during the season, and that will help us going into 2019. Leslie, what are your impressions of Ed Oliver and what he can mean for this defense? You know, Ed's done a really good job up to this point. Uh, you know, it's, I don't think it's been overwhelming for him. Uh, you know, with the meetings, along with what we're doing on the practice field, you see his quickness, you see his burst. Um, and as he continues to get a better grasp of what we're asking him to do on defense, I think you'll see more of his athleticism as well. But up to this point, you know, we've been impressed with what we've seen. And, you know, we just keep watching this maturation over the next few months. Did you have a pretty big smile on your face on draft night when oh, man. Know, just number nine and he was there? <laughs> Absolutely, because, you know, we went through so many different scenarios with Brandon and his staff, the scouts. And, you know, some showed that he would be there. Some showed that he wouldn't be there. And you're like, man. And so you're, you're sweating, you know, right up to the point where he's still there at nine. And so it was uh, a lot of high fives in the defensive meeting room uh, when he was there at nine. It was, it was great for us. What kind of learning curve? You touched on a little bit. What kind of learning curve is there for, for Ed in trying to get up to speed with some of the veterans? And how much does it help having Star line up next yeah. to him, a guy who's, who's been around and seen it all? Yeah, the, the learning curve part for Ed is it's not only uh, picking up our system and grasping that, but – you know, coming to the National Football League as well. So, Josh, for instance, one of the things you got to be able to, to deal with is this locker room is just so different than what he came from the University of Houston. The competition is so different. So there's a learning curve when it comes to that. I mean, there are some guys that can, can match up a little bit better than some of the people that he played against in college. So you got to be able to get through that. And then you throw in what we're doing from a defensive standpoint that's a different scheme than the scheme that he came from, being able to grasp that and be able to go out and play fast. So you need a guy like a star or even a, a guy like a Harrison who's gone through it just a year ago to kind of talk to you, help you to get through some of those days where you're starting to wonder, man, am I going to ever get this? Uh, so you need that. And so we're fortunate to have some veteran guys in that defensive meeting room uh, to help him along the way. I know it's early. What differences have you seen in Tremaine on the field now as opposed to his, his first steps here just a year ago? Probably the biggest thing, John, and, and, and Bob Babbage and I were talking about this, the confidence, I mean, it's, it's extremely high now. You see it uh, in the way he communicates. Uh, he has a much better grasp, obviously, of what we want to get done on defense and what his role is within that. And uh, his ability now to communicate uh, with no hesitation, uh, to know exactly what we're looking for as a coaching staff. I mean, you see it evidenced in, in the way he's practicing and the way he's communicating with his teammates, which you know, gives those guys confidence in our middle linebacker. So he's grown. Uh, over the offseason and, and, and from some of the things that happened uh, as rookie as well. But the confidence, that's probably the one thing that's sticking out more and more. Going back to Ed uh, Oliver, you know, and you're watching his Houston tape, how did you balance, what do you think about his uh, size? You know, he played at 275-ish or yeah. 282 at his pro day. Uh, um, you know, his size, quickness, uh, combination, you know, uh, how do you view that, his size, so little, well, let's see. What question am I asking? The question is playing three technique at 280. Given his quickness, how do you what do you how did you evaluate that? And what do you, how do you think that he'll handle that? It's actually a good question. It's one that we we talked about a lot uh, in the process. Uh, Beer Tilling, our defensive line coach, as you know, uh, you know we had a lot of conversations about transcending from college football at 280 pounds to the National Football League as a 280-pound uh, three technique in our scheme. And for us, you know, we don't necessarily feel like we have to have a 300-pounder or a real heavy guy at that, that position. We need a guy with great quickness, great get-off, 
uh, that has strength and athleticism and uh, Ed has those qualities. So he had a lot of the things that we were looking for for the position. He's so explosive. Uh, he had some, some rare physical traits that we didn't want to ignore. So we feel like his strengths are a good match for what we're looking for schematically, you know, in our defensive tackle, at, especially at the three technique. And that's what kind of sold us. The more we watched the tape, the more we were around him, uh, we saw the things that we were looking for and the qualities that we needed uh, to really uh, help us at that position. Does it help when you look at Kyle Williams having played that position? Um, and, 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 and I think Kyle is, was, was a little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, way to, but, but he had the same kind of thing. Does it help yeah. to compare? You know, I'm not comparing him to Kyle Williams as of yet, but they have similar traits in some ways. They do. They, they're, they're built somewhat similar. Uh, you know, and you're right. To, you don't want to get ahead of yourself as far as the comparison, but as when you look... Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Got them. You can see some of the comparisons. But uh, for Ed, uh, when we were going through the process, his quickness, his athleticism, his power, his burst, and those things just jump off the tape at you. And uh and there, are some, there have been some other guys his size that have succeeded in our league. So uh, you don't want to ignore that and you want to take advantage of it. If you can get it, he fits what we do. And we're looking forward to hopefully people giving him some one-on-ones and him having some success against some of the guards in our league. Kyle was the biggest voice on that defense for so long. In yeah. his absence early on in the soft season program, who has assumed that, that role? Oh, without question, uh, Lorenzo Alexander, John, he, he's, probably the voice of our defense uh, for our team. And, and you know, he was kind of in that role uh, to a degree uh, with, with Kyle here as well. And now it's really thrust upon him to kind of lead us. And he's done a great job of it. He's, he did a great job when Kyle was here as well. And he's kind of accepted that role. And I think the players kind of look to him and expect him to be the voice uh, for our defense. And uh, he doesn't shy away from it. Coach, do you think that, because Kyle used to call a lot of your pass rush games, yes. right? Is that going to be a shared responsibility on the field, do you anticipate, or yeah. that's really hard for one guy to do? I mean, I, I know Kyle can pull it off. Yeah, it, it is something we've talked about, Chris, and I mean, that's part of what we're going to miss with Kyle. Many things we're going to miss, but that's, that's one of the things we'll miss is how he took control of our defensive line in certain situations and was really a, a coach on the field. So we kind of put it to our players, you know, we wanted to ask them who's going to be that guy to step up and and have the courage to put the time in because you got to put time in, study in tape to be able to communicate, you know, what we want to do up front. And then the guys got to have confidence. The only way they can gain confidence is if you know what you're talking about. So, uh, so we'll see how that goes over time. We have an idea who we want to be able to do it, and we've already begun that process. But, you know, we'll see how it shakes out in the next, you know, few weeks and months to come. Sure the people you think will work in the slot to compete with Teron John. Um, we'd like to be able to, you know, get some depth at that position. Last year, Raphael Bush did a good job for us in that role. Uh, we're going to let Saran Neal get a shot at that, that position as well. We got Denzel Rice taking some snaps at it. We may even give Kevin a shot at it. We've also got EJ Gaines, who a couple of years ago played it for us at times. Uh, 
and he'll get some stops at it. So we got a, a group of guys that'll be battling for that, that backup slot position. How much has Jermaine grown in that leadership role? I think, you know, like I was saying earlier with John, I think he's grown tremendously and, and, and it goes back to the year he has on this belt and the confidence that he's gained and having that experience as a player. So uh, he's grown quite a bit and he'll grow even more. I mean, we're still early in, his, in the process with him. So uh, there's a lot more growth to be done, but he's come a long way from a year ago. So, all right. Thank you, guys. Yeah. All right. There is Leslie Frazier, our number two of the nightcap up next. We'll get back into the Mitch Marner conversation a little bit. Um, NBA Finals as well, and of course some Bills talk to Brian Dable on the way uh, in hour number two as well. It's the nightcap with Jody Biasi, 803-0550 if you want to get on the conversation, 550-550 for texts, at SneakyJoeWGR for tweets here on WGR. Enjoy a tall, cool dude. I grew up like most kids, worried I couldn't bench two plates, that I wouldn't fit in, that I wouldn't find love. Then I discovered partying, and suddenly all those worries went to the wayside. I didn't need love, I had keg stands. I discovered I was great at raging and it revealed wonderful things about myself. I could relate to bros regardless of what kind of bro they were. I could be at a party and moon people and everyone would laugh, you know, be witty. Or I could play beer pong and compete with real integrity. In short, I fulfilled my potential. The Nightcap on WGR, Sports Radio 550. Hour number two. So, it's final season. It's not quite as good as uh, first and second round because you don't have quite the volume of games. Like a night like tonight, nothing happening. Except my show here. But, I, I really think, so the Stanley Cup Finals, not quite on the same level to me as it used to be compared to the NBA Finals. The NBA has just gotten so much better, uh, at least for me, with all the superstars and the super teams. And I know that's not really new, but as someone that grew up not having a basketball team in their city, I didn't really get into basketball until you know the last few years. Really, when LeBron went to Miami was when I really started to get into it. And it's kind of the same for me always. It's... If hockey and basketball are playing on different nights, I'm going to watch both games in full. But if they're on the same night, this is why I like it when the NHL kind of schedules it separate from the NBA Finals because I'm usually going to the basketball if they're on at the same time. Um, Game one last night was kind of lopsided, even though the score did not reflect that. I think 4-2 to was the final, Uh, one of those being an empty net for Boston. They were curb-stomping the Blues. I mean, just destroying them. Shots were 35-14 to 14 at one point. I think they ended up uh, even worse than that. And I mean, St. Louis, they could not hold the puck. They could not pass the puck. They could not get it anywhere near Tuka Rask, who's been so good anyways, especially in the third period. And I hope that it goes a different way because the last thing, the last city that needs a championship right now is Boston. And they are on their way to yet another one. Like, when is the last time they've gone a significant amount of time without a championship? The Patriots won about 10 years uh, without one, but you had the Celtics winning one in there, you had the Bruins winning one in there, you had the Red Sox winning one in there. So really, it's been a really long time. Um, I'm not confident that the Blues are going to 
win this series, especially now the Boston's up one nothing. I would pick them at this point. St. Louis is good, but I, I thought even coming in that whoever was going to come out of the West was going to be the underdog because even though I hate Boston and I hate the Bruins, um, their team is – got to give them credit. Like Their team is really good, and the way it's built is really good. They're very balanced. They're not even like like Toronto. Like the advantage they had over the Leafs was Toronto's got all this talent up front, uber amounts of talent up front, but their blue line is lacking, and Boston does not have that problem. They have McAvoy, who scored a great goal last night and is a super good young defenseman. Chara somehow is still playing well, even though he kind of went away for a couple of years and then has had a little bit of a resurgence. Brandon Carlo is good. Tori Krug is good. That hit last night. So I wanted to get into that a little bit. Everyone's saying, oh, is it charging? How is that not charging? And the if you read the rule, it's kind of vague. I know, shocking, right? An NHL rule being vague. But it is. And I can see why that's frustrating because it pretty much leaves charging subjective. And in my mind... And what I think the letter of the rule, the letter of the law should be on charging is I don't really care how fast you're going. But to me, it's charging if you are striding into the hit. Like if you are gaining speed when you hit the person, that's that's charging. But when you do a crew did last night, which, yeah, you're flying up the ice, but he hits the red line. Like, he hits center ice, and if it wasn't center ice, it was right after that. It was before the blue line, before he enters the zone. He is gliding for a good, you know, a good chunk of space there before he hits Robert Thomas, the blue that he that he crushed. And to me, that's not charging. Because when you're gliding, for, for a significant amount of time, too, for a hit, like two, three seconds before a hit, it's actually a pretty long time that you're gliding, and he was. So, to me, that's not charging. And he did leave his feet, but he left his feet on the after, like, or on the follow-through, essentially. So, I would not have called that charging, and I wouldn't want that called charging, and I'm glad they let that go. Because, especially, it seems like every big hit now, or at least a lot of them, the refs call something because it's almost like it's so hard to hit a perfect, clean while also violent body check. Like, that's so hard to do that refs almost recognize that that's so hard to do. And if they miss any part of the hit that's illegal, they're going to call it anyway because it's almost safe to assume that some part of the hit was illegal. And even if they didn't catch it, chances are you call it and you probably got it right. But, and that's why I've had a big problem with the way games are officiated in the first place because sometimes it's assumptions that are being called and not... You know, actual things that the refs see. But I'm glad they let that go last night. Because I thought that was clean. And sure, you could argue that it's charging. But to me, it's not concrete enough to where that should have been uh, charging. So I would have let that go. The other thing, too. There should be... Like, this league... The NHL is probably the league that is least serious about concussions. Especially of the ones where it's a big problem. Like, NFL and NHL are the two where it's the biggest issue because there's contact. But even, like... NBA has protocols, uh, soccer has pro- concussion protocols, uh, baseball I'm not really sure about, like I'm not a big baseball guy though so I'm not, I would have never read up on that, um, but hockey, like 
you can have college does it differently, international does it differently. If you lose your helmet in international hockey, or as a junior, maybe it's both, you have to leave the ice immediately. Like you have to go right to the bench. You're not allowed to just skate around and play without your helmet because that can obviously that could be disastrous. But the NHL doesn't have that, and. Not only did Krug lose his helmet before he makes that hit on the other end of the ice last night, David Perron takes it off him. That should be an automatic two-minute penalty. If you want to be serious about head injuries, you want to be serious about concussions, then you need actions instead of just words. Actually, never mind. Not even words, because Bettman obviously has been refusing to connect head hits to concussions or CTE to concussions. It's been an ugly scene. But I think you need to have an automatic two-minute penalty. If a guy takes the helmet off another guy, I mean, that's got to be. It would be a penalty if he took off any other piece of equipment, wouldn't it? If a guy's laying on the ground and someone just comes in and takes a skate off, <laughs> that would never happen, but that would be a penalty. But helmet, whatever. We just let it go. And that should be automatic because Perron very clearly took it off of Krug last night on purpose. Anyways, that series, uh, you know, not a great start competitiveness-wise. It was pretty one-sided, and uh, I'm hoping the NBA is not the same thing because it has been the last two years. Warriors have destroyed the Cavaliers two years in a row. The Cavs have won one game in the last two NBA Finals, and the only point there was really any sort of doubt was game one last year between the Cavaliers and Warriors. Remember when J.R. Smith forgot the score? Like, they would have won that game, and then it would have got interesting. The Warriors still would have been a heavy favorite, but you would have had some sort of doubt. And that's all I'm looking for. Like, all I'm looking for in the NBA nowadays, because most of it is great. What The one thing they don't have is, or haven't had, is doubt of who's going to win the championship. Wonder of who's going to win the championship. You, you've known the ending. It's going to be the Warriors. It has been the Warriors. They've lost one playoff series in five years. And if there wasn't a suspension in the middle of it, it was deserved, but if there wasn't a suspension in the middle of it, if Draymond Green could keep his feet under control and not kick people in the stones, then they would probably want another one. And now, one guy's injury is kind of keeping us from that that doubt, that not knowing who's going to win. Because it would be a little bit up in the air. The Warriors are a big favorite right now. They're minus 300 to win this series. If Durant was healthy, you can bet that number would be even bigger. Now, if Durant were to be ruled out for this series, that number would probably be smaller. He comes back in this series, the Warriors are going to win it, and they'll crush it. If you told me today he'd be playing game one, I'd pick a sweep. That team's unbeatable. That team is unbeatable when Kevin Durant is in the lineup. And it would be one thing if they were like this perfect uh, form of basketball when he's in there, but they're not. They're different. They're more stagnant. They're more isolated. When Durant's almost like their, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? He's like their escape. Their escape route. If things aren't going well, give it to KD and he can go one-on-one and he'll score. As opposed to the team basketball that the rest of the guys play. And not that Durant doesn't do that either, but he just doesn't do it to the same level. And if he does not play in this series, Toronto is right in it. And that's all I want. I just want to not know who's going to win. So I don't ever want to wish injury upon a guy. 
But I don't want Durant coming back in the series. I want to see what happens without him. I want to see... And, and first off, because I really have never respected the move he made going to Golden State, nothing would please me more, and probably a lot of people that didn't like that move, nothing would please them more than the Warriors winning the NBA Finals without him. Not just the NBA Finals, but sweeping the Western Conference Finals, and, oh, by the way, they beat the, they beat the Rockets on the road in a pivotal Game 6 to avoid a Game 7 without him. The team that was built to beat the Warriors, they beat without Durant. The team they played in the Western Conference Finals, they swept without Kevin Durant. And now the team that's going to come out in the East, that's got Kawhi Leonard, who's one of the best players in the world, on it, and has home court. That Toronto team is an underdog to a team that right now does not have Kevin Durant. So if this hasn't been evidence that that move just ruined any sort of parity in the NBA, then it would kind of be the nail in the coffin if they win this series. That would be the final, you would almost not be able to argue it if the Warriors win this series. You just would not be able to make the case that the Warriors need Kevin Durant. Like, don't you want to be needed? If you want to be the best player ever, or even in that discussion, which I'd have imagined how good he is, he would be thinking about that, especially compared to, or uh, considering how much he really cares about what people say about him. Every time someone has something to say about him on social media, it seems there's Kevin Durant coming to his own defense. Or if not, it's not him, it's one of his burner accounts. Which is a thing. If you didn't know that, yeah, Kevin Durant has burner accounts. So, I don't know. I th- I'm hoping the Warriors win if Durant doesn't play. If he comes back, I'm rooting for the Raptors. Because I do like Toronto, and every time I go there, I love the city. And it's a place I could see myself living in the future. Like I just love the city itself. I get very annoyed by Toronto Maple Leaf fans. But other than that, I like to root for that city. And... That's a team that has trouble getting star players to come there. They might have, they could win the championship. Kawhi Leonard might still leave. Like, they have problems getting star players to come there. It's not a small market, but it's treated like a small market in the NBA. So, I root for a team like that. And they've struggled in the playoffs. They've been unable to get past LeBron James. And there's been some suffering there with that franchise. You root for the new guy, right? But. At the same time, if Durant's not there, I'm rooting for the Warriors. I I know, but like I know you never want to root for Goliath. But in this case, what it would mean to Durant's legacy, how interesting that would make that conversation. And it would also pretty much eliminate any chance that Durant comes back there. You can't come back there if they win a title without you. There's just no way. You got to build up your rep again. You got to go to the Knicks and take a team that hasn't won in 25 years to do something. Like, you got to do something else if they win without you. Hell, he might not even be at the parade. So, that's where my interests lie. If Durant's there, I think I'm going Raptors. I'm rooting for the Raptors at least, even though I would think there's no chance they'd win that series if Durant's there. But if he's not, I think you're going to get a lot. You're going to get a lot more close basketball games. You're going to get a lot, uh, a lot more competitive series. And I think you're going to get a lot more interesting headlines. So like I said, I hate to want 
wish a guy injured. He's already injured. I hate to wish a guy that he doesn't get healthy, but oh man, it would just be so much more interesting if he just stays off, if he doesn't come back. Here's what I'm rooting for then, because I don't want to wish him injured. I'm wishing, I'm rooting for him to get healthy, and then decide I'm just gonna let this play out. I'm not gonna come back. That's what I want to happen. Probably not realistic, but that's what I want to happen. So Josh Allen looked good today, huh? Check out Sal's article at WGR550.com. Apparently, Josh Allen was lighting it up on the practice field today. Shorts and t-shirts, I know, but I'll take it. What else do you want, OTAs? I don't want headlines that he was missing all over the place and inaccurate. Rooting for him. you got to root for him. Even if he wasn't your guy, you've got to root for him to be uh, the franchise quarterback so we can stop having the conversation on a loop for eternity of who's the next guy. Uh, Brian Dable, offensive coordinator, is coming in for his second year. And he talked a lot about Josh Allen today, his offseason, his progress, also a little bit about his relationship with Jordan Palmer, which is kind of a weird dynamic, right? Like, you're the offensive coordinator, and your quarterback's got his own personal QB coach that he goes to in the summer. But from what it sounded like, uh, Dable and Jordan Palmer communicate a lot on that, like what they want him to work on. So that that was a good sign. Uh, We'll play Dable back when we come back, and we'll talk um, one more point I want to make about the Mitch Marner conversation we had in hour number one before we get out of here, but we'll switch the football uh, when we come back. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi, 803-0550, if you want to get any thoughts in before that, here on WGR. Welcome back to the Nightcap. we got about a half hour here left on WGR. If you missed anything on what happened to Bill's OTAs today, you can check out the details at WGR550.com. Sal's got two pieces up. One, on how good Josh Allen looked, which we'll hear more, hear more about here from Bills offensive coordinator Brian Dable. Also, a piece on who lined up where, because there's interesting position battles on the offensive line. There's like a million different scenarios for what the offensive line could look like uh, week one, at least starter-wise. Um, running backs as well. It's still super up in the air who's going to get the touches. Wide receiver as well. Now tight end, kind of, too. Tyler Croft injured. Might not be ready to start the season. PUP list could be in play. And it sounded like, uh, from what Dable said and from what uh, Sal said, that Dawson Knox was getting basically reps as the first tight end, which I like. So a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of a lot of mystery on the offense right now. Brian Dable, offensive coordinator, uh, talking a little bit about those things, as well as Josh Allen, of course, who had a really good day. By all accounts, here is the Bills' offensive coordinator. A lot. Um, you know, I think it, from year one to year two for any player uh, is a huge, usually you make a big jump um, because there's so many unknowns when you come in here. You can talk to these young rookies that are going through rookie meetings and they don't know their way around to a Tim Hortons or, you know, um, shortcuts to the stadium. All the little things that you take for granted, uh, it's all new to those guys. And then on top of that, you're playing a pretty difficult position you know, both physically and mentally, and you have so many things growing through your head. I was just talking about this to Tyree after practice the other day. You know, you've got to lead, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and heck, some of these guys can't even get the play call out just yet. Um, so Josh's understanding of, of, you know, what we try to do here uh, and his input, too, you know, it's a give and take. i got a lot of respect for him and, and really appreciate, appreciate coaching him. Um, you know, he's, he's grown mentally, physically, off the field. Uh, on the field as a leader, uh, and again, it's a short time. We've only had three OTAs, and 
back to phase one, you know, he's, he's been really helpful for all the new guys, um, whether it's the rookies, whether it's the guys we signed, uh, trying to build relationships with them and, and grow off the field as well as on the field. Sure. Well, you got you got to think too. Back last year, Josh was taking reps with with the threes a bunch, and then he was taking reps with some of the twos and some of the ones. And you know, to build camaraderie and consistency, particularly in the passing game, you'd like to throw it to the guys you're going to throw it to um, as many times as you can. So, I think having him out there obviously is very helpful because he's going with his with the ones for the most part. And again, we don't have a depth chart, but the guys that he's working with, some of the new guys like Smoke and Zay and, and those guys, I think that's really beneficial for him because he's he's taken reps with, with a lot of the guys that he'll be working throughout with the summer. Brian, how much does a, does a quarterback in a second year need to take more command, um, add to that the presence of leadership and adopt that to build upon, you know, after swimming through his first, first season, how much does a quarterback need to do that how much do you need to see that from him? That's, that's the nature of, of playing that position, um, is going out there and able to compete at a high level and also being a good leader, uh, whether that's, again, off the field or on the field. And Josh is going to lead how Josh leads. I don't, I don't think you can take any cookie-cutter example of leadership and say this is the way you have to lead. Um, I think Josh is a good leader. I think the guys... And you can ask those guys, but I think they respect both his work ethic and his ability and his command uh, in the huddle. Um, and, you know, we just got to keep growing that and building it with him. Uh, but he's, he's done a good job. From what we see, mm -hmm. we see this, ah, shucks, I just want to win kind of guy, which is the way he's been, you know, for mostly that. Has he, have you seen him change and maybe hone his message? Yeah, well, that's a good thing to have is just a win method. Uh, you know, you, you, you want that from your quarterback. Um, but his preparation habits, um, even how he is around the building with all facets of the building, from the training staff to the cafeteria workers to the people in the weight room to the equipment guys, um, it's not just the players. He, he's, you know, quote, unquote, the face of a franchise. And there's a, lot to, there's a lot that goes with that, particularly when you're a young guy and picked as high as he did. I think that his, his, his mindset, though, is to get better every day. And, you know, he, he's, got, he's got a good leadership, um, good ability. Uh, he's a good guy to work with. I'm happy we have him. Is, are there specific ways, and if you could explain what they are, to address where you didn't see the accuracy of Besides people catching the ball, sure. other people who contribute to that percentage is yeah. contribution to that. What, what, are you, uh, what can you address to, to improve that? Sure, Vic. I think that um, the more reps we get, the better it off it is for him. And that's just not out there on a seven-on-seven seven or a team skelly or a perimeter period. That's you know routes on air that we've been doing since phase one and phase two and making a move off the spot and reset ball location on, you know, underneath throws where we got a better opportunity to catch and run. Um, 
And it's not just catching the ball for the skill guys. It's making sure the skill guys are in the right spot doing the right thing when they're supposed to do it too. You know, a yard off here or there can be a big difference in a throw. So, you know, we, we've been working on it. Uh, Josh has, has been working on it very diligently along with Matt and Tyree, and, you know, we'll just we'll keep at it. Cross injury kind of changed the dynamic of the tight end position a little bit. What have you seen, you know, early on in those years? Yeah, you know, whatever, whatever happens, it's kind of good for, you know, you – it's not good to have not have anybody out there. You'd like everybody that you signed to be out there. You'd like all the young guys to be out there, all the old guys to be out there. Uh, but that's your job as a coach is to go ahead and adjust, and whether it's a different personnel grouping or use a different guy in a different spot. Um, I think Rob does a good job with all those guys. Obviously, we have a couple young guys that we selected in the draft, um, and then we brought on Lee. Uh, it's a good group to work with. Again, it's a tough, tough break for Croft, but uh, we'll just keep on grinding away. Brian, when, when Josh left here in January, what did you send him away with in terms of, look, do these things in the offseason, and then he goes and works with Jordan Palmer. Sure. The second part of this is, were you in contact with Palmer to help set a plan for Josh? Yeah, I think we, we spoke, we spoke, you know, at the end of uh, whenever it was, whatever month that was, in terms of some of the things that we wanted to try to get accomplished. Uh, have a lot of respect for Jordan and, and what Josh does, and Josh goes out there, and unfortunately, the rules are the rules out there. They're, they're out there, you know, working on. Look, you can only do so many different drills with so many different people. Uh, Jordan does a good job with him. He knows what was expected of him in terms of his footwork and the throws we'd like him to make. And then again, just another good example of I think Josh is then he, you know, brings a bunch of guys out there to go throw routes with um, that were on our team. So. Uh, you know, he's had a good offseason. He's had a good offseason in phase one and phase two. And these first couple of days, we've put him in a lot of different situations. The first three Ds, OTAs, we've done red zone already. We've done two minute. We've done third down. We've done first down. We've done start of a game. There's been, you know, there's been a series in there where I said, hey, you got it, bud. Take it. Call it. Go, go no huddle and you call it on your own. Um, so we put him in a bunch of different situations, both physically and mentally, and that's what we need to continue to do. You have a lot of new guys. It's been fun, you know. We've 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 added some coaches, uh, we've added some players, and this is the time of year to build those relationships. Not just you know in the building, I keep stressing, but outside the building because you got to have a trust factor when you're when you're in this job. Um, I think the guys that we've added, you know, both player wise and coaches wise, have have done a good job. We got good interaction. Long way to go, uh, but it's been it's been good to you know each year is a different year. You know, this year is a little different than last year, which was a brand new deal. Now we got a bunch of new guys at it. Uh, we just got to make sure we uh, we're all on the same page and we're all rowing the boat the same way. Because it's a larger number of undefined goals up front. Than mm-hmm. Maybe even last year, and most years probably. How do you and Coach Johnson kind of navigate through that to get to the end point while also keeping it a fair competition for all the guys that are battling? Sure. Guys? No, good question. This time of year, particularly for that position, it's really, a, you know, it's physical, but it's not as much physical as it is mental to make sure we're doing what we need to do. This is more of a teaching deal for those guys. So they're getting all rotated around just like we did last year. And, you know, once the pads come on and they're able, you're able to see them, you know, extend their arms and move people off the line of scrimmage and keep the depth and the width of the pocket, 
Uh, right now, it's just you're teaching the system, you're implementing it, you're moving guys in different pieces, you're seeing how they communicate one another, uh, and then once the pads come on, I think that's a that's a better time to really evaluate that spot. Knowing how committed coaches are to the calendar, mm -hmm. so to speak, when you get to camp, do you and Coach Johnson kind of already have in your mind's eye when you want to try to get those roles solidified so you can just Sure. Uh, well, I think the earlier the better. But you don't want to you don't want to push it to where you don't have the exact answer that, that you think is best for the football team. So it'll all play out. Um, but obviously, the sooner the better. So you got a cohesiveness working together um, with those guys because that's an important aspect to it. And what is Josh and, and Mitch Morris doing to at least try to build chemistry now, knowing sure. that you can't practice right? Yep. Now? Well, there's a lot of communication that goes on in the meeting rooms, and uh, I'd say Mitch is out there with the script, watching practice. They're talking back and forth. Uh, but again, it's 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 tough when you're not out there actually physically doing it and getting the reps. But as much communication as we can uh, encourage between those two guys, uh, that's important. Along several lines, you don't have Cole Beasley working right now either. But in your offensive scheme, Brian, uh, this guy has been a true producer in that slot. Mm -hmm. One of those guys that can find holes. In your scheme, how important is it now to have gotten a guy like him to throw in there? Yeah, he's, he's a good player, and that's, I think, you know, again, Brandon and Joe and their staff did a really good job of, of you know, both free agency and in the draft. Uh, again, you love him to be out there and, and to be able to throw with Josh, but, you know, the slot is a, is a, it's a tough spot to play inside, and I think Isaiah and Ray Ray have done a good job here, but it's a tough spot to play. There's, there's a lot of moving pieces that are going inside with backers and drop-down guys. It's like playing inside in the interior part of the line versus playing outside where you basically got a defensive end or you got a corner. You need really good instincts. Um, at least the guys that I've been around that have been successful in the slot have really good instincts, um, good short space quickness. Uh, he falls into that category. I don't know how much personal coaching experience you can draw from on this issue, but rebuilding a line, which mm -hmm. again seems pretty extensive just based on what we assume. What what do you draw from to, and have you dealt with anything quite like that? And there are those who say, well, it could take, you know, upwards of a few, I've heard coaches say this, you half a year or whatever to, uh, of the season to, to get the line on uh, in sync. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you wrap your head around all of that? I think you give them as many reps as you can. Uh, those, guys, those guys meet a ton. And Coach Johnson and, and Hef and Wendy have done a good job with them. You, it's such a, it's, you have to be a physical player and move people off the line of scrimmage, but you have to be a, a player that communicates well, particularly from inside out, so everybody's on the same page. Um, you give them as many reps as you can. You go through it in, in training camp, and you, you get going again with that. And you know, to the question earlier, the sooner you can, the sooner you can get that kind of ironed out, the better it off it is for, for all five of those guys. Uh, but you know, a training camp goes it's such a competitive deal, and you give guys reps, and they gotta, they're competing with one another, so. It will be fine. Coach, I, I go back to what you said about Josh and how quickly, how much you put on his plate up. Mm -hmm. Your red zone, you've done two minutes. Would, would you say it's normal this time of year to have done all that already? Um, I, I don't know, last year, a rookie quarterback. Sure. And with Tom, you might have done all this stuff. But I even noticed you guys were wearing headsets last weekend on the field yeah. during OTAs. Like, are you ahead of where you would normally be because maybe the roster can handle it more? I don't know if ahead's the right word. I think that Coach McDermott had. Uh, he had a philosophy going into these first couple of days of how he wanted to handle things. And, you know, 
whether it puts some pressure on the players and puts some pressure on the coaches, I think that's a good thing. Um, again, you got to be to be a good football team. You got to be good at situations and red zone, third down, and two minute. You know, maybe we didn't necessarily start there in all those cases, but in the first three days we've got a bunch done. Um, I don't know how you know all the other teams are doing it, but I just think that uh, it was it's good for the players to you know you you install a lot, so there's a lot going through their head and be able to respond quickly. And there's plays where there's periods where we don't have scripts or do anything like that. We just go out there and call. Whether I'm giving it to Josh or Josh had a no huddle period and he did it, um, I think that's good for the players and the coaches. Right, we've got almost 12, 15 minutes. So I'll talk about the running game. How much? That's how, on. That's on you guys. I know it. I know it. But it, how much do you need that? Was it acceptable what happened last year, and how much do you need that to be better? To take the load off everybody. Sure. Well, I think to run the ball. I mean, sure. You know, we we got to be a better running football team. Um, no question about it. So, you know, whether it's schemes or plays or you know philosophies or whatever it may be, um, you know, we're we're working through that right now. Again, it's it's a little tougher during these times to to really practice it. Uh, that will happen in training camp a bunch. Uh, but you know, we've done a lot of work in the off season, um, both as coaches and then when the guys get back, the players. Uh, so we're we'll be working to grind that out. Does every team with that in mind kind of get maybe a little bit more done in the passing game this time of year, just because you can't physically, you don't pass? Yeah. Yeah, my, my experience, Mark, is yes. Um, you know, you, you try to be smart the way you practice and, uh, you know, do with everything within the rules. But, you know, the the grinding and the double teams and the movement at the line of scrimmage, uh, there'll be enough time for that in, in training camp. Do we do some of it? Absolutely. Uh, do we do it as much as you would like to do it? No, because of the parameters and the, and the rules and how those things go. The, the guys that we've brought in, um, you know, off the field, I think it's been, it's been really good. Those guys have – we've made some good additions in terms of personalities, uh, tough and smart, guys that are committed, guys that care. And you can see that in the building, but you can see it outside the building, the different things that those guys do. In terms of on the field, um, you know, the more you can rep together, the more chemistry you're going to have. But, you know, there's going to be – Plenty of times in the year where we're going to have to use another personnel group or do something else. So it's it's really good for it's not good for anybody for anybody to get hurt and miss time. But you do you know you you go ahead and you work with what you got and you you put the guys out there because it's going to happen. It's going to happen whether it's in training camp, third preseason, second game, whatever it may be. So it's it's good to go through those situations. Just to, just to clarify, when you were talking about you know the stuff you were throwing at Josh, mm -hmm. letting him here take this no huddle and go with it. Is it your goal to kind of get him to a point that by the regular season maybe you can give him a little bit more rope in certain game situations, or are you just are you testing him now to see if he can do that? Yeah, like we're in the day four of OTAs, so we're doing a lot of different things. Um, again, situationally, like red zone, low red zone. Today we're working some fringe. Uh, we're doing a lot of different things right now just to – to throw on his plate and, and see what we need to keep getting better at and see what he's got a firm grasp of. Right, what have you seen from Tyree Jackson so far? 
Um, much like a young quarterback is coming in. Um, very diligent worker, hard here, you know, works his tail off. He's done a good job with the young guys, uh, all the guys that he's around in his rookie group. Has a lot to learn, uh, knows he has a lot to learn, but is a guy that's willing to, to go out there and improve every day. Uh, he's been good in the room. There's Brian Dable. We played Leslie Frazier back for you in hour number one. If you want to hear the special teams corner, Heath Farwell, you can check that out on demand at WGR550.com. We will take a timeout, come back and wrap things up. Last call in the nightcap next, 803-0550 is the phone number. The score on Twitter says to rank the Rocky movies from best to worst. So, of course, knowing me, if any of you do, I had to take a stab at it. So I'll have that for you next. When we come back here on the nightcap here on WGR. All right, a couple minutes left here before we get you to NASCAR Live. So, race fans, stay tuned. The score on Twitter says to rank the Rocky movies from best to worst. So, of course, of course, loving rankings, I had to do it. Had to do it. Also, huge fan of the Rocky franchise. I mean, it's got to be the number one franchise. Movie franchise ever? Right? Should I, make, should I rank movie franchises instead? Rocky 4, number 1. Rocky 3, number 2. Then Rocky 2. Then Rocky 1. Then Creed. I like the first one better. Creed, then Creed 2. Then Rocky Balboa, that monstrosity that came out about 10 years ago. And then Rocky 5, which is just, I mean, by far the worst one. I mean, I don't know how you could... I just don't know how you can make that. It, it was so bad. Um, before, to me, is definitely the best one. You gotta love the Ivan Drago storyline. It's the villains, right? Who are the best villains? It's Clubber Lang and it's Ivan Drago, so that's why they have to go one and two for me. Alright, thanks everybody for listening tonight. You catch the whole show on demand at WGR550.com. If you're looking for some hockey talk, Mitch Marner, the Sabres, the Leafs, we spent a lot of time on that at the beginning of the show, so that'll be on demand very shortly here at WGR550.com and the radio Dot com app. I'll be with you briefly tomorrow, leading you into coverage of Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Final in Boston between the Blues and the Bruins. Bruins up 1-0. Puck drops at 8. Our coverage will start at 7.45. So I'll talk to you tomorrow at 7 o'clock. Until then, enjoy NASCAR Live coming up next, and have a good night. It's the Nightcap. Jody Biasi here on WGR.